you haven't been with us, um, or even if you have, I think it'll be really helpful just take a couple of minutes and trace where we've been in this book and in this series. The book of Job, and a lot of us just avoid this book because all kinds of seemingly terrible, not seemingly, a lot of terrible things happen in this book, and we're scared of this book. But the book of Job, if you want to boil it right down to it, is really about one overriding issue. And the issue is this. How do we make sense of the seemingly randomness of suffering in our lives? How do we make sense of it? We get a call, our teenager has been arrested. We get a message from our doctor saying he wants to see us or she wants to see us. There's a diagnosis of an inoperable brain tumor. We get the call in the middle of the night, no one of us wants to get that a loved one's died in a car accident. Our home's been destroyed by fire. We all understand the context of Job. That's why we probably avoid the book. How do we make sense of these things? And for folks, all sorts of questions emerge, don't they, in these dark nights of the soul. Um, is this God's judgment? Is this because of my sin? Am I being punished in some way? Where is God? Does he have a purpose? Is he merely allowing what's going on? Or is he, in fact, designing? If he's designing, that seems arbitrary. Is he punishing? Is this Satan? And Job was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was not a perfect man, but he had faith in God and he was striving for obedience. But in the space of hours and days, his life was utterly decimated. His kids die. His property is stolen and destroyed. He is inflicted on his own body with illness, disease, natural disaster. And folks, we need to know that Job was wrestling through some of the same questions, in fact, the very same questions that we wrestle through. Where's God and what is he doing? And we've seen that behind the scenes, Satan is scheming. Satan has a plan to destroy Job's faith, but something more important and radical is going on. Because if our explanation stops at Satan, we've totally missed it. What we see in Job is that this is actually part of God's design. Satan is just doing God's bidding because God is testing Job's faith. He is refining Job's faith. He is using Satan to penetrate Job's heart with this one central question, and it's the question for all of us this morning. Do, does Job worship God? Do we worship God merely because of all the good stuff that he gives us? Or do we worship God because he is God? and because he is good, and because he is enough. And folks, I know that's hard to understand. It's hard for us to piece together suffering and God in that way. And be encouraged, though, Job doesn't understand this either. And that's why, over these past 31 chapters, Job and his three friends have been having an ongoing debate. And it has been a theological free-for-all. Because the friends have been saying, Job, You've sinned, and you're not righteous, and that's why God is punishing you. And Job has said, wait a minute, guys, I am righteous, which must mean that on some level, God is arbitrary, and he is un." 
fair. And into this chaos and confusion and clash of worldviews steps a young man named Elihu. And, and I, he's been here the whole time. He just hasn't said anything. He just kind of appears out of nowhere, as Josh Hughes reminded me. It's very hot, Harry Potter-esque. He apparates onto the scene, okay? He's there. I have to work that in wherever I can. And he brings, amazingly enough, clarity and confusion to this theological tumult. So Job 32, let's read the first five verses, and let's start to unpack this. Job 32, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he, meaning Job, was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Berechel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in these three men, he burned with anger. Lord, we're going to talk about hard things, but glorious things, great things this morning. And so we just need the capacity, just like Job did, to hear and to see and to discern spiritual truths. Lord, I am totally cognizant of the fact that this morning, some of us here are living the story of Job and that there is unspeakable pain and there is enduring heartache. But Lord, we believe you're good and that your word has something to say to us this morning. And so we're praying that you would give us the ears to hear. Lord, do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Elihu's bottom line assessment, and please hear this, this is so important, is this. Counselors, friends of Job, you indict Job. You say he's unrighteous. Job, you on the other hand implicitly indict God by saying he is unfair and arbitrary, but I'm here to tell you you're both wrong. You're both wrong. And then Elihu spends the next six chapters in a series of speeches declaring and setting our barometer for the goodness and greatness of God. I want to highlight two themes from these chapters, the who and the what of suffering. And as we unpack those two themes, the who and what of suffering, I want us to consider something. This is, for Oaks, not a sterile, academic, theological debate. This is not something for the ivory towers. This is not something for the people who write the commentaries. The way that you answer these questions, the way that I answer these questions and understand the relationship between God and suffering has real implications for us. In almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, and, and I see a couple of old friends back there, they're, the Sibiers, their kids were in youth group, can you guys believe it, 97 
I mean, a long time. Um, and, and in those 18 to 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have witnessed people's spiritual lives oftentimes devastated by bad theology, bad advice, bad counsel, and bad explanations for what is happening to them and what should be done about it. Hospice comes into the home of the elderly mom who's dying of cancer, and people, Christians, are telling this woman's children, if you simply have enough faith, God will heal your terminally ill mother. And the reason he's not is because you don't. That's devastating. Um, Parents have been told that if they raise kids in a certain way, they can expect, in fact, should demand certain results from God. And so when their kids go prodigal, they're only left to interpret that this must be God's judgment for my lack of faith in parenting, and it's despairing. Um, Young people have been told that God wants everyone to marry and to have kids, and that that is his best, and they become despairing because God sometimes chooses not to give a spouse or a child, and they become embittered because they don't know why God hasn't intervened, and they assume that something is wrong with them, or worse, that something is wrong with God. Folks, this is no academic debate. This hits us all right where we are, and into these issues steps Elihu. Two speeches, the who and what of suffering, first point, the who. And here's the question for us. Folks, to whom should we be listening when we are confronted with trials? Who is qualified to speak into situations of suffering? And interestingly, Elihu, who's younger, has a word for both the older and the younger amongst us. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you if you're older or younger, okay? I'm, I'm going to leave that up for you to decide. But I would propose it's a relative question. In your home, dad, you may be the older. But in your fellowship group, you need to shut up, okay? You may be, you may be the younger. Um, you, th- this could be relative to your family, your fellowship group, your Bible study, your workplace, the contacts, but Elihu's going to tell us that there's some things that both the younger and the older can learn from him about engaging with others in suffering. And so let's look at what those of us who are younger, whatever that context is, can learn. Look at verses 6 and 7. We're continuing on through the text. This is what Elihu says. He says, I am young in ears and you are aged. Therefore, okay, listen, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Elihu waited to speak. He was hesitant. He was the youngest person there. He knew that he did not have the age and experience and wisdom on his side to speak as the first into Job's situation of suffering. He knew that he might very well not know best, or even if he did know best, that there was someone older, more mature, who could speak to those issues first. And so he, what? Held his tongue. 
Verse 11, behold, I waited for your words. He's talking now to the counselors. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. Because Elihu, Elihu was, a, was patient. He showed deference. He waited his turn. You see, the younger you are relative to the group that you are running with, the harder it is to hold your tongue. It, it's, 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 the, it's, it's the lesson of youth for all times. You see older people struggling in your fellowship group. You see things happening in your church that you don't understand or agree with. Teenagers, you're awesome at this. You think your parents have lost their mind. And your parents are here to tell you, au contraire, um, it is you. You have strong ideals and vision for the way things ought to be when you're young. Is this not true? Um, you are tempted to bail when things are not moving fast enough or rolling your way. You want to rush in, speak first, think later, and tell everybody what is up. Not Elihu, though. He exercises, and we're big Andy Griffith fans in our house, and if you're not, repent. But he exercises a little bit of Barney Fife theology. And what is, what is Barney Fife's favorite? You know it. What, what is it? Nip it, okay? Nipped it. Why? Because he knew this truism. Older people, by definition and um, by common wisdom, have worked. They have lived, they have raised kids, they have married, they've made payroll, actually. They've started businesses, they have been around the block, they have a clue. Now, some of you know this story, I've told it to some of you before, but when I went to seminary in 1991 at 23 years of age, moving from Knoxville, Tennessee, which is actually not the land of the two teeth people. It's actually a pretty cosmopolitan, pretty cool place. But I moved as far away culturally as you could ever imagine to Clinton, Mississippi, away from my friends, away from my church family, away from the amenities of college football and life. And I was going to school with like grown men, okay, who like had kids. I was still eating breakfast at Circle K. Um, I had five cents in my bank account. I was depressed. Susan and I were dating. We had, we had broken up for the 12th time in 12 months. It was just a regular part of our routine. Because who did I turn to in that time? My roommates. That would have been like one possum following another into the middle of the freeway during rush hour traffic. No, I did not. Okay. I called my dad. Okay. My dad had wisdom, and I had a relationship with him, and I knew he had a similar experience when he went off to college. He went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Kansas, of all places. Guys, I talked to him on the phone every single night for almost a year. Um, it was no coincidence that he became the best man in my wedding a year later because he had cred. He had been there. He had wisdom. He had been tempered with age. And so here are a few things to keep in mind when we engage with people who are suffering. And the younger you are, um, you need to be particularly mindful of this. 
Number one, hold your tongue. No matter how obvious, no matter how clear the solution or the issue seems to be, nip it. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer, what, before he hears, it is what? His folly and shame. Number two, be patient and earn the right to be heard. Because there is so much to be said for faithfulness. Okay? There's nothing quite like um, a young single dude coming up to a father of four and telling him how to be raising his kids. Okay, even if he's totally right. Even if he's totally right. You have to earn the right to be heard. You have to be faithful. Isn't it interesting that Elihu in this passage, he was silent not just for seven days, okay, along with the other counselors. He was silent for 28 chapters. Okay? Some of us can't be silent for 28 seconds. Be patient. And number three, and this is so important for whoever we are in here, all of us need to establish relationships and community now with more mature believers. And that hits every single one of us. Um, unless you want to volunteer to be the most mature person in here, every single person in here needs a relationship with more mature believers. You see what happens, folks, is oftentimes we wait until the moment of crisis strikes or tragedy happens or suffering enters our lives and we're looking around for our network and our community and our friends and we don't have one and we are in a world of hurt. That's why we talk about fellowship groups. That's why we talk about relationships. Um, that's why we make our fellowship groups not season of life. We make them intergenerational because we want gospel wisdom to be passed down from one generation to the next. Every single person in here needs a theological, spiritual, biblical mentor who has wisdom and who is your confidant. And the time to find one or find them is, is not in the moment of crisis. It's now. It's building gospel community in peacetime that helps us prepare for the war of suffering. So if, we're, if we orient younger, wherever that situates us, Elihu has something to say. But he also has something to say for those of us who are older. And I'm not sure if you have noticed older people, but older people can tend to be condescending to those who are younger. Young people like us, have we noticed this? Yes, we notice this. They'll say things like this, or we'll say things like this. If you haven't experienced what I've experienced, you've got nothing for me. Um, if you haven't walked in my shoes, you can't judge. Until you've paid your dues and gone through your requisite amount of suffering, and in, order, in other words, until you've had your own series of failings, I don't want to talk to you. Um, are you someone, here's a question, who is always telling people that are younger than you about the nightmare and disaster that awaits them at the next phase of life? Are you one of those people? Um, you tell the singles, oh, just wait. Just wait till you're married. 
Or if you're married, oh, just wait till you have little kids. It changes everything. Or, you know what, you have little kids now, but just wait till you're a teenager. You have teenagers, oh, just, just get ready. Or, you know what, it's not just teenagers, it's, it's when they get married and they go off. I mean, it's, are you one of those people? As Roger Daltrey of The Who famously sung, okay, this is all for the, all the old people out there, okay? People try to put us down, what? Talking about my generation. You're that person, okay? Are you that person? A lie who has something to say for us as well. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says this, But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. What what does a lie who mean here? I, I think here's what he's trying to say. Because wisdom is wisdom, and truth is truth, regardless of where it comes from. Ultimately, it's about God and his spirit. And God can anoint and bless both young and old. Some of you have seen the movie Amazing Grace. And parents, seriously, if, if you have not repent, go home today, okay, and get that movie. It's the story of William Wilberforce and his decades-long endeavor to help abolish the slave trade in the 1700s in the UK. And if you think about, guys, why can it be so hard for those who are older to listen to the younger? I think some of us, if we were brutally honest, in parents, it's, it's, who, is the ver- who are some of the very best people at pointing out all your flaws? You know, right? Okay, It's your children. Um, your, your spouse has grown very used to your antics. Okay, they, you've, you've, you've worn on them. Okay, they, They've grown used to it. Your kids see things in a fresh perspective and way. And we have to admit, sometimes it is just our pride that keeps us from listening to someone who may be anointed by the Spirit of God. It's kind of like football and recruiting. Um, we, you, know, you will always hear coaches talk about, I would rather have talent versus experience any day. Because you can't teach talent, right? Guys, you can't teach God's wisdom given through the power of the Holy Spirit. He shines his light. And truth, wherever we receive it, is truth. And William Wilberforce was a voice that God used to speak into unthinkable suffering and tragedy of thousands to help abolish that trade, and no one liked it. And why didn't they like it? Many reasons cut into their livelihoods, but it was so much of it was because he was so young. And he was, spoke as one who had authority sound like someone the scriptures talk about they didn't like his youth and they were jealous and here's just a couple of application points for us that we can gather from the example of lihu directed to those of us who are older when it comes to speaking about issues of suffering more mature people number one let me say this don't patronize young people when it comes to suffering as I'm looking around this room right now, 
And I will just simply say this, you just don't know what people have been through. I look around and there are people 10, 15 years younger than me who have had a lifetime's worth of pain and suffering. And you just don't know. You don't know how God is moving. You don't know how God is working. And sometimes those are the very people who've gone through severe trial and circumstance at the beginning of their adult life who are most qualified to speak. Why? Because they haven't grown embittered. Um, They aren't necessarily angry. Um, They can speak freshly from their experience. So don't patronize. Number two, broke. Forks, make room for the young in your lives and ministries. Forks, I want to tell you, you have an incredibly humble group of elders in this church family. I've had occasion to sit across from men, much more seasoned, much more experienced, much more mature than me, been through much more than me, asking my perspective. And that says less about me and much more about them. That's a mark of true biblical humility. Where in your life are you making room for that sort of input? Number three, recognize truth wherever you find it, however you receive it. Sometimes we may not be uber excited about the means that God provides to reveal truth and comfort, encouragement and exhortation to us. Don't treat prophecy with disdain. Okay? Receive God's word wherever you find it and however you receive it. All right, that's number one, the who of suffering. Second last point, the what of suffering And here is where we wade into the theological heart of the book of Job. Folks, what truths are we to hang our hats on when we suffer? If we are the ones that are suffering, what truths should we be listening for? That's the question. Because, you know, Folks, suffering is the great clarifier in our lives, meaning we really don't know what we believe about God or ourselves until we suffer. Because what we really believe comes to the surface when we are denied our dreams or our health is threatened or our loved ones are removed from our lives. As our theology of life, whether we think we have one or not, because we all do, is revealed through our words and actions at that very point that we suffer. As most of you are very familiar with the story of Elizabeth and Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, part of a team, was killed by natives in South America in the 50s, um, was um, left behind Elizabeth Elliot, his wife of two years and a 10-month-old daughter, um, killed by the very people they were attempting to bring the gospel too, and if there is anyone who could have grown embittered and questioned God and become angry with God, it would have been Elizabeth Elliot. Most of you are familiar with that part of the story. 
What some of you are not most familiar with is what happened subsequently in her life. Because not only did she not become enraged or embittered, but she saw God's hand in this in such a way that he, in fact, was opening a door and a window for her to go back and live and work and share the gospel and ultimately see the very same people who killed her husband and his companions come to know the Lord. Her theology of God's providence and God's goodness came to the surface through her trial. Folks, when you go through trial, if you're going through a trial right now, what is being revealed about your theology, your view of God? But see, here, the theology of the counselors was coming to light. If you go back to verse 3, they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Because, and this is so prevalent, we, 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 have, to, we have to spend a second on this. It's so prevalent in our culture today. Because in their mind, what Job was experiencing was because he was wicked. Job's extraordinary suffering can only be explained as the punishment of God for the grievous sin in his life. And in their mind, this was tit for tat. Suffering is punishment for sin, which basically means what? Prosperity is a reward for righteousness. And guys, that is not a a 4,000-year-old debate. That's a current debate, isn't it? But here's the problem with this line of thinking. In the very first chapter, in the very first verse of this book, God does what? He calls Job what? A righteous man. Because the call a person righteous biblically does not mean that person is sinlessly perfect. We all in here, all of us desperately need this. We all need to have a category, a biblical category for someone who is a sinner but is still righteous. A righteous person biblically is someone who, while still sinning, has a heart that is broken and is pursuing faith and repentance. We're not resting in our sin. We are repenting of our sin. We are turning from our sin to the grace of Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself why it was at the end of his life that the authors of the Old Testament could look at David, and here is a man, Four Oaks, a man who had committed murder, a man who had lied, a man who had committed adultery, and they could look at him and say what? Here is a man what? Who is after God's own heart. How is that possible? It's possible because David repented. When confronted by the prophet David, David turned from his sin. It doesn't mean that you don't sin to be righteous. It means that you are someone who seeks out after the mercy and grace of God in your sin. I don't know about you. I find that incredibly encouraging. Folks, whatever you've been told, God is not judging us for sins committed. He's disciplining us to root out the sin that is remaining. And that's a world of difference. Look at Job 36, 7 through 10 behind us here. Elihu says, he does not withdraw his 
eyes from the, from the righteous. See, there it is, right there. If you are in Jesus Christ today, you are righteous. God looks at you. He does not see you. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares. Now, so in other words, if, if, if they get caught up in their stuff, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands they return from their iniquity. See, there's a disciplining process that God institutes with his children to open our ears to instruction. Folks, do you know right now, if you're experiencing suffering, God has one overriding burden and lesson for you. Open your ears. Turn to me. I am enough for you. Let goods and kindred go, Martin Luther said. This mortal life also. So don't indict. Don't blame. Don't search for the hidden sin that you think caused your suffering. Don't point to a lack of faith. God is opening ears. And this is where Job needs his corrective. Because what does Job say? Verse 2 of the same chapter, 32. Elihu says he justified himself rather than God. In other words, Job didn't fall into the camp of saying, I'm not righteous. He said, I'm righteous in the biblical sense. And because I'm righteous, I don't know what's going on. I just know God seems very unfair, very arbitrary, very capricious, very random. Are you in that place? In a crowd like this, um, where so often we do stand against prosperity theology and saying that our sin caused this or our righteousness earned this. But oftentimes we can thus fall into Job's camp. And we question God. And he forgot, Job did, something that Elihu wants us to remember. And that it's, it's this, Four Oaks. Every trial and suffering that we experience in this life is part of God's mercy and grace to us, Job 33, 14 through 18. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then what? Listen, how does God speak to us? Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside man from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps his soul back from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Folks, we think about the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, who said it this way. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction or the trial that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life 
itself. Why? Now here's the why. Why your suffering? Why my suffering? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Folks, sometimes God strips away everything so that when he restores life, he and he alone gets the glory. Job realized, did he not, that he could do nothing apart from God, that he was utterly helpless, that he was utterly dependent, and when God, at the end of this book, restores some of Job's previous blessings, Job knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not about him. It's all about God. Folks, let me just share this. I want to I close with this. I want to share with you as your pastor how this truth this morning about God using hard times to open eyes to our need for him. I just want to share for you personally how this truth is resting on me during this season, how God is challenging me to apply these truths to my life. And I say this not to elicit pity or be manipulative. I just, you need to know I'm a man and I'm human and I struggle with these things just like you do. Guys, it's an incredible blessing to say that even if I was not on staff at Four Oaks, that this would be my church home. Because there's a lot of pastors who can't say that. They would tell you, if I didn't have to work here, this is not where I would go. Um, and I know that sounds terrible, that's, but it's true. And I'm thankful that there has never been a day in 18 years here where I have felt that we love this place, we love you, our family loves here. We have raised four kids here by God's grace. I think, Four Oaks, we are a healthy church. I think we're a good church. But like all families, we have problems and issues. Um, even healthy families, right, have problems and issues. And if you are new, um, surely you know this. But if not, you soon will, okay? Um, and I would liken this past season, this past year, to kind of like Thanksgiving dinner, having Thanksgiving dinner with the whole family, where everyone knows that there are issues, right? Um, and you just have to decide, am I going there or am I not? And sometimes we go there, sometimes we don't. Well, guys, this past season, the leadership felt it was important for us to go there. And we asked all of our members, covenant members, to renew their commitment to this church family. And the reason, guys, is because it's healthy in any family to always be talking about what's going on. That's a good thing. Sometimes it can be very dysfunctional just to say, we know there are issues, but let's just let it lie, okay? Let it lie, let it go, okay? Don't go there. Folks, I do not want us to be First Church Tallahassee of the Northeast. I just don't want to be that church. I want to be a real, vibrant community 
of believers who's living and walking out the gospel in community in a real, authentic, powerful way before the Lord. And so we wanted to go there. We thought this is important um, because we've been through a lot of changes over the last couple of years. We have a new team. We there's new styles, new approaches to things. There's two campuses. There's a team preaching team. We know we know some of you that this has been a hard transition. Um, some of you are, are wrestling through these sorts of issues. What does this mean? What is the vision? Where am am I all in? Am I not all in? And our desire through these church covenants is that we would go there, that we would be able to talk about it and work through it and make our decisions, and for your sake and our sake to have a clean playing surface that as we move forward, we are a unified church family. Guys, it's time. When we come back from summer break, we want to hit the ground running again. We want to grow again. We want to reach people. We want to build our relationships we want to have um, a foundation of trust. We want to put down roots. And so that's what we've been doing over this past season is just having conversations with many of you about where, where are you and how are you wrestling with this season and what's wrong and what needs fixing and share your perspective and we can share ours. And let me just say this, guys, it's been incredibly humbling. It's been incredibly humbling, in many ways hard, but as your pastor, you need to know this. It has been oh so good. And here's why. God has shown me in this season that this is not about me. This whole church thing, it's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than us. I do not have ultimate control. Actually, I've really got no control at all. <laughs> um, I've got nothing. I can fix nothing. I can't make anything happen, or at least anything happen of eternal value. Only God can do this. And he has just been resting that truth on my soul. I've got this, and you don't. And that is good, Paul. I'm opening your ears, and I am revealing, and I am killing your pride. Because when I do what I want to do, and whatever that is, that's up to God, you're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. Where is that happening for you in your life? Where is God denying you something? Where is God taking something from you? Where is God saying no? Where is God shouting to you in the midst of your pain? But remember what his ultimate aim is all about in his ultimate aim in the life of Job. Worship me because I am God and I am enough. Let me close this quote and we're done. John Piper. So the central lesson for us from the book of Job is that the children of God, those who trust in God, are led by his spirit, have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus, may indeed suffer. And when they do, it is not a punishment for sin. It is the free application of the principle of sovereign grace. Suffering is not dispensed willy-nilly among the people of God. It is apportioned to us as individually designed 
expert therapy by the loving hand of our great physician. And its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God might be glorified.